Hello, everyone, and welcome to this webinar. I'm Francis Seeley from Global Net 21 and MPhil Voices, and this is one of the many webinars we do over a year. And today we're going to look at a special subject. You know, in the last 20 years, we've had a number of crises. We've had the crash in 2008 and 2009, and today we've had the COVID crisis. And what surprised many people is in both crises, the government has managed to find the money it needed to tackle it. It bailed out the banks in 2008 and 2009, and now it's finding the money to put people on furlough, to tackle some of the infrastructure problems around the National Health Service and so on. And we're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss how does money grow on trees. And we've got Phil Armstrong with us, who's from the Gower Institute, and he'll tell us about that. And um, he belongs to a new school of economics, which looks at how money is created. So thanks for joining us today, Phil. And can I, can I ask you, first of all, to very briefly, just tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Uh, thanks, Francis. Thanks for uh, inviting me, you know, and giving me this opportunity to talk about MMT, you know, um, I'll, I'll just fill in a little bit, as Francis says. I'm a school teacher, taught economics A-level from 1981, I'm that old, uh, through to uh, 2014 when I took an early from school uh, and then went back into teach engineering or in the engineering division. Uh, so I've taught a lot of economics. I'm a post-Keynesian, uh, if that means anything to anyone so essentially i am a i come from a keynesian style background but post keynesianism although it's an excellent school some fabulous economists in post keynesianism to me there are gaps in it there are certain questions that come to my mind as a post keynesian the post keynesianism itself don't answer and that's where modern monetary theory which, you know, Francis and I will be discussing, comes to the fore and provides answers to questions that other schools don't, both orthodox economics and uh, other forms of rebel economics, if you like. Okay, None well, of them deliver. Okay, well, well, we'll go through some of those things gradually, but you're, you come from the Gower Institute, don't you? What yeah. is that? What is that? Uh, the Gower was, there will be an institute soon, I think, but currently they're, they're only an initiative, you know, and they're, they're moving towards institute status. I think there are certain things you've got to do to get there. To me, I call them an institute, but apparently they're, they're not quite there yet, Francis, but they're on their way, you know, they're, they're in the making. Uh, the Gower initiative is a group of three uh, possibly, well, four ladies, really, but it's predominantly run by three now, who, um, they're just like ordinary yet extraordinary women. They're all involved in protecting the health service, developing public service, just ordinary women on a mission to make the world better. And they've probably heard old guys talking in pubs about economics so decided what we do is form an initiative and they they all met in the gower rooms in london hence the title it's got no name connection and they formed a group they had a, a, a you know a, a, a construction of that made a website 
And then what they did was enlist economists, some of the world's finest economists, as their advisory body. And on a lesser ranking, people like me, who, who are economists, who like know a bit about economics, to talk on their behalf. So really, that's the GAR initiative. It's just three women working together, voluntary organisation, to promote making a better world through the eye of modern monetary theory. Well, that's how lots of organisations start, from a few people who want to make a difference, and clearly yeah. wanted to change the world. So yeah. what made them choose modern monetary theory to do that, or MMT as it's called? And, mm. you know, what is MMT for those people who don't know? Well, the first thing about what makes MMT particularly special is it challenges the way we think about the world, our framing of the world. All right. Now, I don't admit it'd be too grand, but you saw when um, Copernicus realized that it was the sun at the middle of the solar system, not the earth. It's a completely new framing. So the observations were the same as they always were. You still see the same things in the sky. You just cohere them, if you like, against another framing. Now, MMT does that with economics, and that's what attracted Gims, to answer your question, Francis. That's what attracts a lot of people. It's a new framing. So you see the same things, you know, money coming in and out of the government's bank account, banks making money. But now you cohere it against another framework. And what makes this is it makes sense. The old framework has people scratching their heads, like you said. So, well, how, how come the government's running out of money, but they bailed out all those banks and gave us all but, that further? But, but what is the new framework? That's what I want to get at. What is MMT? Right, okay. Well, I don't know whether people... But most people... I'm going to play devil's advocate. You say to a guy, okay... Uh, where does the money come from for the government to buy all the things we need, like, you know, nuclear weapons and the health service and new roads? Well, and people, the answer goes like this. Well, they get it from taxes. All right. So we pay our taxes. They go in a big bank account somewhere and they store it up. And then with that money, they do what? the need to do you know whether it be if you're a conservative nuclear weapons or if you're a socialist it might be more for health service wages but whatever it is whatever your politics that's what they do they get the money from taxes if they haven't got enough to borrow it we're not sure if we're from probably foreigners and we have to pay interest and we top up the difference so taxes fund spending and if we haven't got enough we borrow it now, what MMT says, it challenges that. It's the wrong way round. Because when you think about it, okay, taxes can't fund spending, all right? The earth, all right, is not the central solar system. Because the question is this, the private sector cannot produce state money. It's illegal. Don't go in your loft tonight with a little machine and print off a few fivers to pay your taxes, all right? The government has to spend money into the system before it can tax. Now, that's your starting point, that realisation. But if we if we go on, because we've got obviously a lot of questions, yeah, we want to yeah, get sure. through them all. MMT means, does it then, that you can print money if you are a government? 
Uh, it doesn't mean you can. It means more than that. It means you do. Now, I've made this point initially, right? And this is very, very important. Crucial for MMT. Let's use my ana uh, analysis. The orthodox view says that the government can 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 fund itself by the ish, by taxes, by borrowing, or by printing money. And if it does the third one, you get inflation. So they characterize MMT as saying, well, what the government should do is simply print money to produce things. And if it does that, that's fine. MMT is not, repeat, not saying that. What MMT is saying is the government always, with a capital A, and in every case, always fund, always provides what we want by spending new money. So in other words, taxes don't fund spending. If the government wants to do something, it decides what it wants to spend on, it issues money by date or entry, and taxes and borrowing come later. That's what MMT says. Oh, okay, so um, if, if you have MMT and governments can print money because they're what's called a sovereign currency supplier, mm -hmm. many people argue that governments in that situation cannot be insolvent. Mm -hmm. So can, can you tell us what a currency supplier is? Right, so if you took, say, uh, the UK or the US or Japan or Australia, we have our own currency, you know. All pounds in Britain that are pay used for paying taxes can only come from one source, the state, all right? We can't make pounds to pay taxes. It's illegal. I don't recommend it. In America, if you want to pay taxes to the to the US government, you have to return US, ta uh, US dollars to them. You, the private set in the US can't print them themselves. They have to be issued directly by the US state. So a sovereign issuer is a government which issues its own money uh, and it's returned in payment of taxes. And the opposite of that would be a Eurozone country, to answer your question, Francis, in the contrast, would be, say, the Germans or the French, their currency is the European Central Bank. All right, so the, the, they have ceded monetary sovereignty to the European Central Bank. So they are effectively currency users. Okay, so let, let's get this clear. If, if you are uh, attached to a standard, like the gold standard, for example, um, or fixed exchange rates, mm -hmm. or if you're in a supranational organization like the EU, where the European bank controls the printing. If you're Italy, mm. if you're Sweden mm. or whatever, you cannot print your own money. Hence, Greece had real problems yeah, because yeah, yeah. they couldn't print their own money and they were dependent upon the European bank. But in the USA and the UK and Canada and Japan, where we have that sovereignty, we can actually print our own money. If we don't have enough, we can print it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we... we... If, if you think about the gold standard, your, your ability to uh, issue money is necessarily constrained by your gold reserves. For example, if you spent a lot of money, all right, and didn't tax a lot of it and, and didn't tax much back, so you kept on printing it, people could convert that currency into gold at a fixed rate. 
So obviously that money could, you could lose your gold reserves. All right. So you're constrained in your spending. Uh, in, in the case of the euro, for example, uh, all the effectively they are currency users. Those countries use are effectively using a foreign currency. They have bank accounts functionally at the European Central Bank. So countries like that have to fund themselves through uh, taxes or borrowing. Okay, whereas a country like, say, the UK, we are an issuer. That means that the government, through its parliament, if they decide, for example, they want to give the health service workers a 15% pay rise, that would go through parliament, it would go through the issue, and those people, through data entry, would be paid. Taxes got nothing to do with it. Later on, taxes come back into the system, uh, and that's. But it's got nothing to do with the funding requirement. Taxes just come in later. You can't be short of something if you issue it. You know, the all, all the pounds, all the dollars, all the yen. You can get as a long list. All the Australian okay. dollars. So, they're all issued by those countries. Yeah. So. If, if you were on the gold standard, for example, you would have a commodity currency. It would be based upon gold. Yeah, um, yeah. But if you're a sovereign currency supplier like the UK, like the USA, like Japan, etc., the currency that you can print is called fiat currency. Is mm -hmm. that right? Is that the term that's used? It's a yeah. It, it's a recognised term for the printing of money. Is that correct? Yeah. It basically it means effectively all it means is that it relies purely upon the fiscal system. So in other words, the value of the currency is underpinned by its acceptance in taxes. So it, it isn't it isn't backed by a commodity. So for example, you know, like it, 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 if we're under a gold standard, it wouldn't actually work in practice a lot of the times. Technically, you could convert currency into gold at a fixed rate. Where now you, you couldn't go to the Bank of England with a £10 note and say, give us me gold that, that send you away. So what underpins the system is the fact it's accepted in taxes. So, I mean, this occurred, I gather, because we came off the gold standard and then in the 1970s, President Nixon deregulated the dollar from fixed exchange rates and that allowed countries to have control over their own currency for better for worse. So what happened in 2008 to 2009 when banks became bankrupt and, and now today when COVID has hit, has hit us and hit our economy badly with fiat currency as we described it then we can deal with the problem simply by the touch of a button. We can flick a button on a computer, not us, but the central bank mm -hmm. can do that and it can print money. Is that correct? Yeah, well, up to a point, yeah. I mean, first point is that um, all economies and all communities are constrained by real resources. Now, this is the crucial point, that in any community like, say, Britain, what constrains our ability to deliver a good uh, lifestyle for our community is our real resources. What I mean is by that people, their skills, their ability, their motivation, our infrastructure. So in a country like Britain, our government is not constrained by finance, but it is constrained by real resources. 
So we can't solve our, pro our problems by the flick of a switch. What we can do, for example, is if we had 20,000 unemployed nurses who were sat at home with their feet up on the table and we needed more nurses, the government could press a button and employ them in nursing, solves the shortage of nurses. If, on the other hand, we had no nurses, flicking a switch ain't a problem. It, it, you know, it, it wouldn't solve the problem. So the answer is governments are not, I repeat, not constrained by finance, but by real resources. If we have unemployment, they can be employed by the state to do jobs we want at almost zero cost. So when people say oh, MMT, magic money tree, you know, pressing the button solves that, it's a lie. It's not, no MMT says that. You have to be very specific. Governments are constrained. We're all constrained. A community is constrained by its real resources, what's available in the country. If the government spends money, into the economy, it draws resources from one uh, area to another. And if we have spare resources, fine. If we haven't, there is a cost, an opportunity cost of moving some resources to another. Okay, well, let's talk about that issue in a sec. But, you know, listening to you, some people will be absolutely shocked. They can't believe that you can print money to get out of a crisis. I mean, conventional politicians have argued that um, you know, we have to have a balanced budget. And conventional <laughs> politicians like Margaret Thatcher have said, mm. the national economy is like the mm. household economy, and we have to make sure we don't go into debt. Now, why are they wrong? Why are they so conventional if you have this radical solution to our problems? Mm. Well, well, the thing is, first point, do politicians understand the system? No. Do any senior politicians understand the system? No. Is it a conspiracy theory? No, they don't understand. Let's get that in the bag. All right. For a start off. Uh, they have no understanding. Right. Somebody like I'm going to go to use the Copernicus example, because I think it's the best one. If you stand on the earth in 1400, and you look up, it's obvious, isn't it, in 1400, that the sun goes round the earth. You can see it. You're standing there, you can see the sun moving round. It, it does, you don't need to discuss it. Now we know it's the other way around. Now, if you look at the government's bank account, money constantly is coming in and out of the bank account. Now, somebody like Thatcher, when she looks at it, she coheres it as if, the money coming in is paying for, inverted commas, the money going out. So in other words, she said the government's got no money of its own. It's only got taxpayers' money. She's wrong. What's happening is the money going out is allowing us to pay our taxes. Right. So if the government spends money through data entry and it taxes less back, who has got the money? Us. If the government spent a billion in a year, tax back 800 million, would you agree it's got a deficit of 200 million? Who's got it? We have. The private sector. So the government's deficit is identically equal to the penny to our private sector 
surplus. So the government's deficit is good. It's our net saving. And it's only a problem when it gets so big that we're so rich, we can spend so much, and you may have inflationary pressure. That's the important thing. Balancing the books is a nonsense, uh, and it shows people don't understand the system. Okay, but I mean, you know, having a deficit is something that John Maynard Keynes talked about, and he thought that was good and it was important, and you are in that sort of tradition. But many poly conventional politicians and some economists will say, if we carry on this way, we will have a huge national debt. Um, how do you counteract that view? Well, the problem for them is that that all the politicians that, that cohere like that are like, if you like, pre-Copernican astronomers. They're using the wrong system, all right? And it's as simple as that. They're looking at observations and they're not making sense of them. The answer being, right, okay, people say things like this and, you're, and you're, the guys tuning in will be thinking, we're all in debt. Well, we all can't be in debt. You sack the accountant if he says we're all in debt. In any monetary system, for the pound or the dollar, the, the debt must equal the credit, penny for penny. Sack the accountant. All right. If there's only me and Francis in the world, you know, it's a very quiet world. There's just the two of us. If I'm in debt 10 quid, Francis must be in credit 10 quid. You know, there's only the two of us. Okay, now, so in pound, credit adds to debt. So if the government's in debt, strangely enough, the non-government sector, private sector, whoa, that's us, must be in credit. Okay, so, and that's the national debt. Yeah, it's so, great. Okay, well, I mean, just to get people to understand it, I mean, what you're saying is in the accountancy system, and I think, you know, the founder of... Um, of, of of MMT, who was, uh, I, th I think, um, uh, Warren Moser, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I keep thinking it's William Moser. Warren, I mean, he, oh, yeah, he, he would argue that, okay, if, if we're running a deficit, a government is running a deficit, mm. and the people out there with the money have a surplus, mm. and that surplus means they can make the economy grow. If it's the other way around, government has a lot of money, but people out there don't, and the economy doesn't grow, and we get recession mm. and we get unemployment mm. and so on okay but what people worried about as well is that if you increase the money supply again and again you're going to get hyperinflation how do you react to that well i mean first of all hyperinflation is really really rare and really difficult to get i mean there's no record of any democratically controlled government without external constraints ever having hyperinflation. Now, bear in mind what I said at the beginning is MMT describes what we actually do. It's not a policy prescription. It's saying governments do spend and you've got to do spend by date rent. They do that all the time. They're doing it now. They always have done. So if it causes hyperinflation, we would have been in a permanent state of hyperinflation forever, and we're not. It's rare. So basically, and also, if you think about it, right, what you're really saying is that democratically elected governments would spend, spend, keep on pressing the button. So when you've got unemployment, they'll spend more. 
And then when inflation starts, you know, uh, they're going to keep on spending. Well, why would they do that? I mean, they just don't do it. So at the end of the day, it is technically possible that you could get hyperinflation, but it's extremely rare and extremely difficult. What normally happens is the government always spends through data entry. All right. Taxes then are required at the other end to maintain the value of the currency. All right. And that's the way it is. Inflation. All right. Is a rare hyperinflation, very rare event. Uh, where you've got, if you like, governments continually competing by paying higher and higher prices for limited resources. It's very rare. Okay, I mean, so, I mean, what you're saying, I think, is that, and, and John may know, as Keynes said this as well, that you don't get inflation when capital and labour in the economy is underemployed. You do get inflation when it's fully employed. If you start putting money in the economy when all the resources, all the labor is employed, it will put prices up. Now, we're not in a situation where we're in full employment in capital and in labor, are we? We're very, very underutilized. So if you keep spending money, the chances of inflation in that situation, and Keynes, I think, would have argued this, is negligible. Is that right? Uh yeah, I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, it's slightly more nuanced than that. But yeah, essentially inflation, if you think about it, the government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. You know, the only people who issue currency is the government through its central bank and its agents, the banks, or license agents of the central bank. So you can only get inflation if the government or its agents sp spend at prices above the uh, uh, rate that's currently going so for example if you and i start buying things off ebay at the price that it's currently quoted it's not inflationary we just keep if it says buy x at 10 pound we buy it stays 10 pound all right we'd only get inflation if someone somewhere and given the state some monopoly issue the state directly or indirectly spends higher price offers higher prices than the current price level um that's where in, that's what inflation is. And so when you've got unemployed resources like we've got now, where the inflation targets 2% and, you know, inflation's 0.7, there's obviously loads of scope, isn't there, for the government to increase its spending at current prices and find that it's well able to increase our output. We don't need to worry about inflation. OK, so with MMT... We could, in those circumstances, solve so many of our social problems if the finance oh, yeah, yeah. Is, is available. Social care, health, education, building a green economy, improving yeah. our infrastructure. Yeah. It's, it's a gift for politicians, but they won't take it up. That is strange, isn't it? Why is it they won't take it up? Oh, well, you probably have to ask politicians, but my guess would be that they just don't have the moral courage and they don't understand the system. So first, they don't understand the system, all right? Secondly, let's say that you could explain to them how the system works. They don't say it because it's a big risk. Imagine you were a Copernican astronomer in 1550, you know, would you be prepared to stand up at a conference and say the earth is going around the sun, not the other way around? It's dangerous. Even a radical socialist type economist, would they say, look, the deficit is too small because the inflation rate is below target and we need job 
I mean, imagine the uh, headlines in the Daily Mail, you know, bankruptcy. And the problem is for a politician, one, they don't know. Two, they don't want to know because it's too high a risk. Then the question becomes, well, how will they ever know then? The answer is from the bottom. Ordinary people like you, like your listeners, like me, we start pushing. We start letting them know we understand. So they, they're at meetings and they're, they're, uh, you know, their constituents are saying, well, don't you realise the government spends through data rental? We've got a load of un unused resources. Why don't we key in the money required to bring those real resources into active and productive use? And when they say, oh, well, won't that cause inflation? Then the member of the audience puts their hand up and says, no, of course not, because if you've got resources that are underused, you can buy them at the going price rate. So it's us that will make the change. Politicians uh, haven't got the courage to do it. Well, that's yeah. not true of all politicians, is it? In America, some are beginning to change, like Alexandra Ortega Cortez, yeah, yeah, AOC. Yeah. There are a number of politicians who are beginning to look at MMT much more seriously. So you must have hope that some politicians are beginning to shift. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is possible that politicians will accept, like Chris Williamson, who used to be in the Labour Party, he's now part of Resist, you know, he embraced MMT to an extent. Uh, and there is... There is hope. However, say, take the Labour Party, for example. I mean, their latest um, approach, you know, with um, Annalise Dodds going on about fiscal sustainability was a huge retrograde step. You know, we can borrow more because the interest rate's low. I mean, this is all based on, like, the equivalent of Ptolemaic astronomy. The government doesn't need to borrow money. Obviously, it's an issuer. So it only sells debt if it wants to voluntarily give people bonds to buy. So she does not understand the system. Uh, I've offered, uh, just as a matter of interest, I have offered uh, Rishi, Shunak, and uh, I've also offered um, a few other former chancellors the chance for an interview, but they don't want one. I mean, so I'd like to ask them the direct question, do you understand the system? Okay. Uh, well, but I take the point there are one or two politicians on the margins, maybe more in the US and the UK, who might be open to MMC, but it's a hard road and we've got to drive them. They ain't going to do it themselves. Well, I know it's a hard road in all um, political parties in the 1920s. The Labour Chancellor, Philip Snowden, mm. was so orthodox that oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, John Maynard May Keynes thought he was next to useless. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, there's a real job to do. OK, so you've told us some of the basic tenets about it and we come to the end of our 30 minutes. So mm. can I ask you if anyone who wanted to get in touch with you, find out more about what you do, more about MMT, where would they go? Uh, I think go to the Gower Initiative website, okay? Uh, the, you'll find it's fantastic. There are, or they can email me directly, you know, I'll uh, you can pass on my uh, college email, I'll give it to you, Francis, uh, and then they can email me directly with questions if they want. You know, I'm quite happy to I take any questions. Okay, well, that, that's great. Thanks very much. And I would also say if people want to really know more about it, 
read um read uh, uh it's oh stephanie isn't it stephanie kelton's book, yeah, yeah. deficit myth yeah i explain that explains it really really in simple terms mm. um warren mosler you have to read it five times mm. to understand half of it but um, <laughs> oh, warren's but, a genius he, he operates he, yeah, on a different I, level no, i agree with that he's he is an amazing guy but stephanie kelton is a really good book to read and it will yeah. tell you a lot about MMT. Mm. Uh, anyhow, Phil, thank you for joining us today because I think it's interesting. Been a think, pleasure. And I think MMT is becoming more and more, um, you know, increasing in volume in, in the, the discussion around how our economy should be and what the new economics should be. It's like the 1920s when the Keynesian mm. ideas came. It was an incredibly exciting time and he had to fight incredibly hard before it was accepted. M8, MMT and some of the other newer theories of neo-Keynesianism is um, and post-Keynesianism, because mm. that's different, they're different. I think um, they are beginning to create an exciting time as well, where we can look at new ways of doing things and get away from the old orthodoxies. Anyhow, we've come to the end of the 30 minutes, so thanks for joining us, mm -hmm. um, Phil, and we'll end this interview now.